Hello, Breakout listeners. This is Dr. Carrie Ulrich. Before we launch into this episode, Kelly and I wanted to let you know about an amazing opportunity for you to win a Caliper assessment and consultation with us, your hosts of The Breakout. The Caliper is a personality and a motivation assessment tool. It's a $500 value that provides incredible insights into your work and life and may even help bring about your own breakout. To enter, just subscribe and leave a review of the podcast. Check out this episode's show notes for all the details. Okay, on to the episode. I went from a couple to a single and thought that I was always going to be a couple, that we were going to be these 95-year-olds on the front porch, you know, drinking lemonade. And uh, all of a sudden, I was alone and had to figure out a whole new life. That's Kim Sorrell, mother, grandmother, author, and speaker. In 2009, four months after Kim was diagnosed with breast cancer, her husband, Steve, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He died six weeks later, leaving Kim devastated and looking for more meaning in her life. It gave me a chance to really sit back and kind of reflect and decide what I was gonna do. And and it made me question some things. I decided I would go on a year long quest to figure out the true meaning of love. And the things I found out just kind of blew my mind. On this episode, we dig into Kim's year long odyssey to explore what love really is. We'll hear what she did where she went, and what she discovered about how our understanding of love affects everything about how we show up in the world. Welcome to The Breakout, a show about smashing through life's little boxes and forging your own path. I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. And I'm Kelly Gunther. Carrie and I are people and change experts and best friends. We've spent more than 25 years helping organizations navigate change and get the best out of their people. Come on, we know change is hard, but staying the same can even be harder. On The Breakout, we prove that you can escape expectations and best of all, we show you how. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, The Breakout. So tell us about when you had this big life change a few years ago. Yeah, so I am that person, like some people are, that have a hard time saying no. (laughs) And so I was on boards. I coached our city volleyball and basketball for 25 years. I ran different programs as well as running businesses. I had 250 employees, probably the most at any given time, working with management staff and everything, you know, from uh, looking at financials to everything else you have to do when you're running businesses and constantly be looking for the next business I could buy or start or whatever. And so I don't remember when I slept. I'm not real sure, but uh, (laughs) somewhere in there I must have, but it, it was a whole lot of of doing and Mm -hmm. not so much being. Where do you think, Kim, that doing came from? Were you always, even as a kid, I always love to imagine Kim as a kid. What did, were you doing a ton of stuff as a kid too? And this just continued? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was in every club, everything I could be in. In high school, I played three sports. I 
I was going to be the first woman president of the United States. That was my goal. I had my life laid out. I knew what I was going to do, and I have to get there. And then I thought that a husband and kids might not fit into that equation. But I knew that if I ever were to meet a man, that he had to have two things. He had to be over six foot tall, because my five-foot-nothing mom married a short man, and I wanted to give my kids a chance at some height. And and he had to be good-looking, because I wanted him to look good in my wedding pictures. So I was obviously a very deep thinker. And uh, May of my senior year in high school, that tall, dark, handsome man walked into the room, and I was immediately smitten. And 10 days later, I asked him to marry me, and he said yes. Wow. So now you're you're off your plan for president because you thought I don't need to be married or have the kids, but you met you met him and 10 days later, how did you make that decision? Well, we were making out on the couch and <laughs> just, just seemed like the right thing to say at the time, I guess. <laughs> so you get married and you have these five beautiful children and you're doing, like you said, I love how you said that you're doing, you're doing so many things. You're saying yes to all these things. What happened a few years ago that made you go from doing to being, as you said? Well, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And I think anytime you get a diagnosis like that, it's going to put life into perspective, right? It's going to change the way you look at things. And I'm here to talk about it. So obviously I got through it just fine. But four months into my diagnosis, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer Mm. and passed away six weeks after that. Mm. And so I went from a couple to a single and thought that I was always going to be a couple, that we were going to be these 95-year-olds on the front porch you know, drinking lemonade and sitting on rockers, smiling at each other, whatever it is 95-year-olds do. And uh, all of a sudden, I was alone and had to figure out a whole new life. So it gave me a chance to really sit back and kind of reflect and decide what I was going to do. And, and it made me question some things. Kim needed a reset. She left her businesses and began doing some work for an international nonprofit that she and her father had started a decade earlier. So I became part-time bookkeeper for this organization. And then 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. Mm. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to 24-7. And within a couple of weeks, I was in Haiti. And then for the next several years, I spent at least part of every month in Haiti. Splitting time between the troubles in Haiti and her home in Michigan, Kim was still grieving. But she was also in a prime headspace to really contemplate the most important things in life. I had a great relationship with my husband. He was a wonderful man. And against all odds, getting married at 18 years old and starting to have kids at 20, we had a great relationship. But here I was then in my 40s alone and made me question the real meaning of love because I wanted to make sure I was living life right that I was doing it the right way. And love is universal. It's the foundation of everything, you know, whether it's business or at home or with friends, with whoever, love is the foundation. Love is where it starts. And so I wanted to know, there seems to be this mystery, right? Like Ed Sheeran sings about it and Nicholas Sparks writes about it, right? (laughs) But I think if you put 10 people in a room and said, what is the definition of love? You'd probably hear 10 different answers. 
So I thought, you know, I'm going to do a deep dive into this thing. So I devoted a year. I decided I would go on a year-long quest to figure out the true meaning of love. And I'll tell you guys, I have a hard time committing to an entree when I go out for dinner. So to commit a year to something was a really (laughs) big stretch for me, but I did it. And the things I found out just kind of blew my mind. I really appreciate that she goes out and she's finding love. She could be a really depressed person and be really angry. She was in her 40s and she lost the love of her life. I mean, you could really be pissed off for a long time about that. Agreed. And I I think just what an inspiration and motivational force for her children and Mm. for just everyone around her. You know, this is, yes, you can grieve, but you can grieve in a way that allows you to grow in the process and to learn something. So it really ties into her very unconventional way of living prior to her loss, you know, proposing at 10 days to her then boyfriend um, rather than waiting for him to propose to her. She took the reins and did it herself. So I kind of love that unconventional way of thinking and that sort of take the lead and, and run with it. I would add, she is kind of this badass because not only did she ask this dude to marry her in 10 days, and then she's going to go to Haiti after the earthquake. I mean, that's some badassery. That is not a word, but I just made it up. <laughs> to explore something as huge as the concept of love, Kim needed some kind of framework. So she chose an ancient and well-loved verse to be her guide. I took a 2,000-year-old poem that you hear at a lot of weddings, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, right? Yeah. And I decided I'd take one word a month, one word or phrase a month, and really figure out, well, what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And every single one, it took me the entire month. It's like I had to get hit over the head with something at the end of the month to really understand it. But every single one, I figured out if you put love is or love is not, in front of any word, it completely changes the meaning of the word. Mm. Can you give us an example of that, Kim? Sure. So very first month, love is patient, right? I mean, we know what patience is. I, I'm, I went into it thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be easy. I already know what patience is. Maybe I don't have much of it, but I know what it is. But, <laughs> you know, you're not honking your horn if you're stuck in traffic. So that's patience. But love that is patient is different. And I believe the best way to live is just love everybody, just love everybody. And so you love the person you're with, whoever that is, with love that is patient, you recognize that this moment right here, right now is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. Mm. This is the most important moment. So give yourself fully and entirely to the person in the moment. And I'll tell you, I sucked at this. Like, I thought I was the greatest multitasker. Like, I would be thinking about a meeting I had later, who needed to get to soccer practice, what I need to pick up at the grocery store on the way home from work, and be fully engaged listening to somebody at the same time. And I discovered it's just not true. So this took me so much practice because I was so bad at it. But I figured out, though, when I am fully present, when I am there entirely, giving myself entirely to the person in the moment, my ears opened up. 
I, I heard things that I never would have heard before. And instead of assuming what you're going to hear based on labels, really listening, really hearing what people have to say, it's, it's amazing what you can learn. What are some of the stories? You being in Haiti off and on for several years, I'm sure you have one or two stories of what you learned when you were in Haiti. I do. One of the things that I put off, it's love keeps no record of wrongs. And I thought, what could that possibly mean? Because you might forgive people, but you don't forget the things that happened to you. So, you know, what could it mean? Well, that month I had a man from the U.S., ask if I would show him a water project I was working on in Haiti. So eight men came over from the United States. And then I had two Haitian friends, both happened to be men, who went along with us to translate. Plus, they were working on the water project, so they knew it inside and out. And so we got out into the countryside where we were going to be staying. And we got there. It was just this little building with two rooms. And there were four twin-sized beds in each room. Eight American men, two Haitian men, and me. But we brought two cots and an air mattress. So I thought, well, we can move stuff around and we'll be okay. Well, the head of the American guys pulls me over right away. Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. And he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, buddy, there's nothing else to see. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, he's asking me because he's going to think I want my own room. So I'll say, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he'll say, oh, no, if anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. And I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And and he'll go, (laughs) oh, good, good, because there's only so much space. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because we've got (laughs) men on this trip that would not be comfortable with a woman in their room. And I'm thinking, what is going to happen in hot, hot Haiti in the middle of the night? I mean, you go into the room to sleep. That is the only reason you ever go into the room because it's hot in Haiti. But I said I would sleep outside, so I had to figure it out. So I saw this piece of plywood, and it was kind of held up by a couple wooden structures. And I thought, well, if I sleep under that, at least if it rains, I won't get wet. So first night I went to bed, and I was scared to death because there are tarantulas. And there are snakes and there are chupacabras or whatever is lurking in the bushes of Haiti, right? So I was so afraid that I would be dismembered in the middle of the night. And so the first night I go to bed, put the air mattress underneath the plywood and held air for about an hour. And then I was laying on gravel. And it was so loud because dogs were barking and horns were honking. And finally that died down, you know, sometime after midnight. And then voodoo drums started in the distance. And then that went on for a couple hours. And then finally, I was able to doze off. So the first night came and went, no problem. Second night, same thing. After an hour, I'm laying on gravel, dogs, the horns, the voodoo drums. Finally, I'm sleeping. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I thought, oh, my gosh, does Haiti even have the anti-venom to whatever it is that's Mm. about to bite me? Can I get airlifted to (laughs) Miami in time to save my leg? Like, what is going to happen? And so I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. There was a dang chicken on my leg. And I didn't know whether to be mad because it woke me up from the little bit of sleep I was getting or happy that it wasn't something much worse. Exactly. (laughs) Right? So third night came and went, no problem. Fourth night, same thing. But again, I woke up because again, there was something on my leg. And again, I was scared to death. 
And again, it was the dang chicken. And again, I didn't know whether to be mad or happy, but I shooed it away. And the good news is uh, that night we had chicken for dinner. So the fifth night came and went with no problem whatsoever. (laughs) And um, I got to say, you know, at first I was mad. I was bitter. I was like, who are these guys? I hope my sons wouldn't treat anybody like this. I'm about equality, but this is not equality. This is Kim, you're, you're less than, you know, Hey woman, you sleep outside. I mean, even though I offered, I still was mad about it. And then I thought, well, you know, bitterness only hurts me. They don't even know that I'm mad at them. Right. They don't even know. So I can't be bitter. And then I went, Oh, I finally get it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So, yeah, we don't forget the things that happened to us, but the narrative changes, the tone of the story changes. So instead of, oh, my gosh, these rotten guys that did this horrible thing to me, now it's just kind of this funny story. And I can literally sleep anywhere in the world and be perfectly fine. So we get to choose the tone, right? We get Mm. to choose the tone of every story that we're involved in. You know, two people can be in the very same traffic jam and one guy's honking his horn, yelling out the windows, screaming, pounding his fists, his blood pressure's rising, his heart's beating faster. In the very next car, the guy's going, ah, you know, Carrie and Kelly, they've got this great podcast. I'm just going to sit back and listen to it and just chill because not going anywhere anyway. So same situation, but two different narratives. So we get to choose that. So love that keeps no record of wrong changes the narrative. I love that because it is so true. It's it's such a perfect example of sitting in traffic and how are you going to look at it and what's your tone and how are you going to choose your narrative? That is just powerful stuff. Kim, why do you think people have such a limiting perspective on love? I think we've been taught wrong. I mean, you know, some of the things that we've been taught about love, I found out we're not love at all. You know, like one one of the things is that love is a feeling, right, that you fall in and out of. And so you find you're one and only and you got butterflies in your stomach. You can't wait to say, I do. Walk down the aisle. You go on this great honeymoon. You get home and he leaves his dirty underwear on the bedroom floor. And you're thinking, why did I marry this barbarian? Who is this man? What was I thinking? Do I really love him? And you question your love. You question that. But it has nothing to do with your love. You love the person. It's the person that you love. And he's not dirty underwear guy. That's not who he is as a person. It's just something he did. And so sometimes we take those little things that people do that annoy us and somehow attach that to our feelings, our our love for a person. You watch a scary movie and you go to bed that night and you hear every bump, every creak, every everything, and you're, you know, afraid all night long. But you don't live in that fear. Fear is an emotion. You don't live in that. Love is something you are. Love is something you constantly live in. You don't hang it up. When you get to the office, you know, you don't take it off when you take a bath. It is who you are and how you decide to walk that out is up to you. For me, it's funny. It's one of those words that you assume everyone knows. It's a universal feeling. It's a universal word. Every society and language has something around it, but yet, Like she said, if you put 10 people in a room, I'm sure you would have 10 different definitions of what love is. And this is the basis for our 
work, life, relationships, and then I have a different definition than you. And I'm saying in front of everyone, I'm getting married and I say, I love you. And everyone goes, oh yeah, I understand that. No, you don't. No, you don't. We have two different definitions. So I think that is a giant dissertation that she's taking on hundreds and thousands of pages. <laughs> what is the actual definition of it? And I initially was, where do you start? But then when she focused specifically on that poem to do a deeper dive, it took on a whole new life of its own. So while she had a goal in mind of what she wanted to find out, I think the journey kind of took her to a place where she maybe didn't anticipate. Thinking about love in all these different ways got the three of us talking about family gatherings and the pressure we put on ourselves for everything to be perfect, when really, our guests only care about being together. That's what life is all about. Is It's about relationships. It's about the people, right? The people in our lives. And, and sometimes we lose focus on that because we are busy and we worry about, you know, how much dust is on the mantle or whatever. And those things don't matter. And if you think about the things that you remember about family gatherings, I bet you never remember how clean or dirty the toilet is. You know, you never wow. even think about well, Carrie yeah. does. Germans. I was going to say Germans. <laughs> Kelly and I are from German families. They might. They they might remember the toilet. That is true. But maybe all other people won't remember it. But Kim, your point is so is so well taken. It makes me tear up because you're right. It doesn't matter. Right. It's a reassuring feeling for sure because I think what resonated most for me when you were talking is just being present and in the moment. And I think that's one of the themes that's coming out of this series is that importance of being present and really taking time to think about what's important for you as a result of the effects of what you've gone through in your life. And obviously the devastating diagnosis that you went through, Kim, of your own breast cancer. And then of course, the the loss of your husband. And I'm very sorry that you have had to endure that kind of a loss, but that you made this a kind of a personal mission for you to really figure out and discover for yourself. And consequently for all of us, what love really looks like. Because I don't know that a lot of us really have taken the time to think about that question and to discover it so fully. So one of the questions I have for you is, is why really go on this journey? What was so important about finding out love so deeply for yourself? You know, people grieve in different ways. And one thing that I've noticed with some people that I've known is they feel like if they are happy again, that they're somehow dishonoring the memory of the person they lost. Like, how can they be happy again when the person is gone out of their lives. Like, how can they find that joy again? And I just believe the opposite is true. I believe the way I can most honor my husband is to live fully and be happy because I was happy, you know, with him. It was it was great with him and it should be great without him. Because I, I can't change it, you know? If he could come back, that'd be great. I'd take him back in a heartbeat, especially because by the way, the pool is awful shallow. There are no good men my age. Well, there, there, there are three. I decided there are three. One in France, one in Australia, one in Antarctica, and I live in Michigan. So I'm not going to meet the three good guys my age that are out there that are single. I don't have that choice. You know, we have things that we have control over in life and things that 
we have choices on and other things we don't choose. I wouldn't choose cancer. I wouldn't choose losing my husband, but I can choose how I want to live. And I can choose joy over sorrow. And I can choose to live fully and give this life the best I got. Mm, What a beautiful sentiment. And you're so right. It is about choice. So you've written a book, you're coaching people on love. What are the things that you're finding out about people and their overall relationship with love, Kim, through this journey you've taken? We learned the definition of love, whatever definition of love we're, we're taught. And so what I'm learning is that most everybody has not necessarily been taught the correct definition of love. There's so many things done in the name of love said in the name of love that, are, that aren't love. You know, one of the biggest things is that we hear often, love is a two-way street. And it's not. Love is a one-way street. Love is 100% up to you. You don't control anybody. We, you have no control over any love that comes back to you. You only can control the love that you give. You know, you bring a baby home from the hospital, you have 100% control, right? I mean, you decide when the baby eats, when the baby sleeps, when you put the baby down, give the baby a bath, all those things. But six, seven, eight months later, your Tupperware is all over the kitchen floor and pots and pans are banging and you realize you have lost all control and you will never get it back again. I promise you, young mothers, you never get control back again. We only control ourselves. So if you're giving love to get love, That's like, you know, giving me money, I give you a pair of jeans. I mean, that's a transaction and love is not a transaction. Love is 100% up to you. And so you set yourself up for disappointment, for loneliness, for resentment, when you have these expectations on love that should be coming back your way. That is probably one of the most succinct and clear pieces of advice I've heard on love in a really long time, honestly, it is that clear uh, around the, you're setting yourself up for complete and total failure if you are nickel and diming really every single exchange you have with someone around love. So thank you for making that so incredibly transparent. I know I've had several aha moments in this conversation we've had. So Kim, you have one minute with someone who's stuck and they want to break out. What do you tell them? I tell them that if the Mona Lisa ever went up for sale, who knows how many millions and millions of dollars someone would pay for it, right? Tons and tons of money. It's because it is a one of a kind masterpiece. Mm. And so are you. There has never been anybody exactly like you. There never will be anybody exactly like you. Nobody has walked in your shoes. You are a one of a kind masterpiece. And when you can recognize that about yourself and truly embrace who you are and let yourself be who you believe you're created to be, not who somebody else believes for you, but live who you believe you're created to be. And then it allows you to allow others to also live who they're created to be. And it gets rid of all the judgment and condemnation and racism and ageism and any other kind of isms because we are all one-of-a-kind masterpieces. And embrace it and love yourself. Love yourself so you can love others. Wow. I feel like that should be what we all wake up to every morning, a daily affirmation to start the day with Kim Sorrell every day. That is so powerful. I'm with you, Kel. Right? Yep. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I'll tell you a practice that is so easy to do and sounds funny and is uncomfortable maybe for a little while. But if at the end of the night, you know, you're washing your face, brushing your teeth, look yourself in the eye in the mirror. Just look straight at yourself and and then think of something that really you did great that day and think of something you did for somebody else that day and then say the word, say, I love you. Tell yourself, I love you. And at first it feels awkward, but I challenge you, do it for 30 days and see what happens in your life because your life will change. I love that one. No, it's great wisdom. It's great wisdom and advice. And it speaks to those who maybe are wondering, what do I do if I am someone who maybe keeps score or is very transactional in the way I approach my relationships or has a difficult time fully giving? That is a great starting point for those people who are wondering, what do I do if I want to take that next step and evolve as a person who is learning to love? Learn love again, love for the first time, has been in broken relationships, maybe has never been in one that's been very trusting or giving. Um, I think that's a great path forward. Thank you so much, Kim, for inspiring so many people to look within themselves and trust themselves and, and learn how to love. Well, it's been a pleasure. You are awesome. And I so appreciate everything that you guys do. Thank you, Kim. Back at you. What I really uh, appreciated was her, I love you every day. Try it for 30 days in the mirror. And I thought, oh my goodness, all the people who are trying to control other people, if you could actually look in the mirror and say, I love you to yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I just think I, there's not everyone, there's some good sociopaths who would go, yeah, baby. <laughs> but some of those maybe on the bubble might have some cognitive dissonance and look and go, Did should I say that today? Should I? And I'm talking about you, most of the politicians <laughs> who don't give a shit about assault weapons. But anyway, that is brilliant. And if I can remember it by tonight, I'm going to start it. <laughs> was Kim Sorrell, author, speaker, and love coach. And this is The Breakout. If this episode inspired you or made you think, give us a five-star rating and spread the word. It helps us reach more people who might just need these stories. And don't forget to subscribe to The Breakout so you never miss a new episode. And make sure you're following us on Instagram at The Breakout Pod. I'm Kelly Gunther. And I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. See you next time.